Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And now, here's your host, Don Cornelius. Hello and welcome aboard. You're right on time for another magnificent ride on the Soul Train. We're coming right back at you with a big smash by the Mighty Temptations, right after some very important messages. In 1971, Soul Train began its 35-year run on American television. The pioneering music and dance show featured the best of black talent and was recognized as one of the most influential television shows of its time. And the influence of black TV on American culture continues. It's a half-century path chronicled by pop culture writer Bethany Butler in her new book, Black TV, Five Decades of Groundbreaking Television from Soul Train to Blackish and Beyond. And Bethany Butler joins us today. Welcome to On Point, Bethany. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I actually would wonder if we could start with uh, the influence of black TV on you. Uh, what's the sort of earliest show that you remember loving that featured, you know, either uh, black stories or I suppose maybe a long time ago there weren't that many black writers allowed into the writer room, but writer's room, but your formative experiences with black TV? Right. So I grew up on, you know, Family Matters, The Fresh Prince, um, really that early, the early 90s, um, there was sort of an explosion of, of black sitcoms and I grew up on those and you know it, it's really important to see yourself on TV and and that 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 was sort of the start of that for me mm. and why did you decide to write this book now well I think it's an interesting time to look at black television you know it's kind of a golden era in black television in terms both in terms of the shows that are on but also in terms of the creators, you know, in the last decade, we've seen new shows from Issa Rae, Donald Glover, um, of course, Quinta Brunson with Abbott Elementary. Um, and it's just a really interesting time. And I think that black creators are getting the chance to be truly innovative and to be in control of their projects. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to talk about um, all those A- A-list um, black creators a little bit later in the show. And I just, <laughs> I re-binged uh, season one of Abbott Elementary <laughs> just over the weekend, Bethany. It's it's really a show that's impossible to stop watching. Um, Absolutely. But, but let's go back in time. And I actually just want to start by talking with the show that uh, we introduced because it was right there at the top. And that was Soul Train. What was so important or actually continues to be so important about Soul Train? Yeah, I mean, Soul Train is a celebration of black culture. Um, Don Cornelius, when he started Soul Train and it was a local show in Chicago um, originally, he wanted it to be a place where black entertainers were given this unprecedented platform to show off their talents. Um, and it re- you really got the sense, you know, if you rewatch it, you read about it, you get the sense that it, it's kind of like a homecoming for black entertainers. 
Um, and it and it grew so popular so quickly that it ended up going national. And it was, you know, it's described to me as appointment television, um, especially for kids and teens who were growing up at the time. Mm. Well, I actually just want to play a quick, quick clip of an interview that I did last August. And it's actually with Demita Jo Freeman. Um, she's one of the original Soul Train dancers. It was uh, for a special event in Los Angeles. So here's a a little bit of that conversation where I talk about um, a scene from one of the episodes of Soul Train where Demita Jo Freeman is dancing on stage next to none other than James Brown. And get this, the godfather of soul standing behind Demita Jo... And he's looking her, looking at her up and down. You can Google this. You'll find it in a second. Looking at her up and down, and he looks like, he's like, I do not know what to do. I will not be able to keep up with her. He didn't. And I didn't know what I was doing either because I never heard that song before. This was the very first time that everybody the world was going to hear super bad. <laughs> and so when I went up on the stairs when, he, when we started, it was like, okay. Keep going. <laughs> he loves to play that beat. Okay, keep going. So in my head, I'm looking, I'm smiling. I have no idea what's coming out of his mouth. <laughs> and when his mouth came and when the you could feel the music when it drops. So therefore, I said, oh, change. <laughs> Let's start dancing. And I've just kept going. And his smile And I said, oh, Lord, I'm in trouble. I'm doing something. I don't know what I'm doing. But I just threw in the robot, and I threw in so many different things. I mean, it's a a work of art that you're doing there. I'm telling you. So that was Demita Jo Freeman, one of the original dancers on Soul Train. I spoke with her in Los Angeles uh, last year. And uh, Bethany, first of all, Demita Jo Freeman is as, you know, vital and alive today as she was uh, back in the 70s. But the reason why I wanted to play that clip is not only to celebrate her, but you note that she says there that it was the first time everybody, basically the whole world, was going to hear James Brown sing super bad. And to me, that uh, that's underscores one of the main, one of the really important things about uh, Soul Train was that it it uh, introduced some of the best of black music, not just to black audiences, but the world as a whole. W- what do you think about that? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it was unprecedented visibility for black entertainers. And then also just a showcase of black joy and black culture um, to kind of tune in every Saturday morning um, as it aired in Chicago. Um you know, and and experience that um, it was so important and so influential and still really influential, as you mentioned. You know, so that means that uh, Soul Train had appeal not just to black audiences, but to all audiences, and specifically to white audiences as, as well. Back in the 70s, was that a requirement for black TV versus hopefully what came later, which you didn't have to necessarily appeal to white audiences to have viability on television? Right. I think in some sense it was um, that there and that and I think there continues to be that question. Is this universal or not? But in terms of Soul Train, um, it was just so immediately popular and resonated. And the other thing that was special about Soul Train is, you know, they had a national sponsor in Johnson Products, the maker of Afrosheen. Um, and that sort of reinforced this pride in being black, this joy in being black that uh, Soul Train was all about. Mm. 
Well, I want to move to the show that you begin the book with, and that is Julia, a sitcom that ran for three seasons uh, starting in 1968. First of all, can you tell us, Bethany, what Julia meant to you? Yeah, it's interesting. So obviously I didn't grow up with yeah. Julia, but um, I've, I've written a lot about Scandal um, uh, by uh, Sh- from Shonda Rhimes. And it was really interesting to me. Shonda Rhimes, um, she actually included Julia Baker as a character name in Scandal. Um, and it, that was sort of the moment that I realized how influential Diane Carroll and Julia had been not only to Shonda Rhimes, but, you know, to Kerry Washington and also just just the whole trajectory of black TV. You know, Julia was the first um, sitcom to really showcase a black family. It was Julia and her son. Um, But, you know, we're inside their home. We're in their living room. We're experiencing sort of day-to-day with them. Um, So that was really unique at the time. And just, we know that Diane Carroll was just so influential to... um, black creatives and black talent. And so to sort of see that through line from Julia in 1968 all the way up to Scandal and to have Shonda Rhimes say, you know, this made such an impact on me. I had to include it in my show. Mm, Okay. So let's listen to a little bit of um, Julia. Now, we should note that, as you said, said it starred Diane Carroll, launched in 1968. It was a story about a widowed nurse and mother. So here's a clip from the first season of the show when um, Julia, the title character, played by Diane Carroll, is interviewing for that job as a nurse. And she walks into the office of a doctor who, let's be frank, is a comically rude and elderly white man. Julia Baker, huh? Yes, sir. May I sit down? No, this is not a social hour. I believe you came here to beg me for a job. I came here at your invitation to be interviewed for position as a nurse. I don't beg for anything. I'll keep that in mind. So, Bethany, we even hear in that scene, but in the show overall, what is it doing? Um, or what stories are, is Julia telling that was so unusual for the time regarding uh, black characters on TV? Yeah, I mean, as you said, Julia was a nurse. Um, Julia spotlighted the black middle class, um, which had really yet to be shown on television. Um, That was one of the few things that creator Hal Cantor and Diane Carroll agreed on, (laughs) that they wanted this show to be about the black middle class. And they wanted uh, viewers to see, you know, this upwardly mobile black woman, uh, professional woman, Um, Prior to that, you know, black women uh, were relegated often to servant roles um, on screen. And so Julia was a big deal. It's interesting that you say that uh, Diane Carroll and Hal Cantor um, came to an agreement on what the show would be about, because I note um, that Hal Cantor, a big name in in, uh, middle 20th century television, but he also had previously... Um, created or worked on series like Amos and Andy that really peddled in other, you know, um, unflattering black stereotypes. 
Right. I found that really interesting, too, um, that he had been involved with Amos and Andy. And he did kind of see Julia as a way to, um, I guess, move the, the needle forward and not be so stereotypical in depicting Black people. Um, but we also know that he and Diane Carroll went back and forth on a lot of things on this show. Diane Carroll, like many Black creators and talent, she felt such a responsibility to her community. And so, um, you know, she was so thoughtful about the script and the storylines, and she and Hal Cantor had a lot of back and forth. Well, we're speaking today with Bethany Butler. She's a pop culture writer, previously a reporter for The Washington Post, and author of the terrific new book, Black TV, Five Decades of Groundbreaking Television from Soul Train to Blackish and Beyond. We'll have a lot more when we come back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for On Point comes from BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp.com slash OnPoint today to get 10% off your first month. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And before I go one second further, let me issue a hearty hello and welcome to listeners in Dallas, Tyler, Wichita Falls, and across North Texas, because you're hearing us today for the first time on 90.1 KERA News. We are beyond delighted to have North Texas with us, and we look forward to hearing from you as well. So welcome to the On Point family. Today... We're speaking with Bethany Butler. She's author of the new book, Black TV, Five Decades of Groundbreaking Television from Soul Train to Blackish and Beyond. Beyond, excuse me. And Bethany, we were talking about uh, the importance of Julia um, as uh, an early um, example of the success of black television. I want to pick up with that with a clip from Diane Carroll herself, because she talked about some of the controversy that surrounded uh, Julia when it first splashed on American television screens. And here she is in an interview with the Television Academy Foundation in 2011. And, and Diane Carroll talks about how the cast and crew felt as the show began in 1968. Everyone was on the line and everyone was scared because um, we were saying to the country, um, we're going to present a very upper middle class black woman raising her child and her major concentration will not be about suffering in the ghetto. And we don't know if you're going to buy it, but this is what we're going to do. Now, Bethany, I know that one of the the great uh, points of your book is to not so much worry about 
what would white audiences think, but to tell the story of these black actors and writers and creators, um, you know, from to celebrate their achievements. But as Diane Carroll says there, at least in the early decades of black TV, it seemed like it was inescapable, this concern of how would it play with white audiences. Has that concern been completely eliminated now or not? Um, Unfortunately, I don't think so. Um, I think there's still a question of like, you know, does the show, um, does it resonate universally? Um, And oftentimes, you know, it's sort of a tone deaf question because I think that, you know, especially when we look at sitcoms, you know, what is more universal than family? What Mm -hmm. is more universal than friendship or even going to a a job and working and and having that experience? Um, So I do think there's been a lot of progress, uh, but I feel like there's still more to go. Mm. Well, but there's this there's this theme. Maybe it's not audiences. Maybe I should focus uh, on um, the people that allow stuff to be on TV, right? The producers and the uh, entertainment executives, because there's a theme that runs uh, through a lot of your your book about who were the ultimate, or maybe are the ultimate arbiters um, of how blackness is represented on TV, and it's not necessarily black executives, right? Right. Um, especially in the beginning, as we're talking about Julia, you know, it was really in in the hands of white creators and white writers. Um, so on that note, you know, we have come far. Um, there's much more diversity in writers' rooms, and we have black creators who are able to tell their own stories with pride and with authenticity. Mm. Well, Bethany, I wonder if you could tell us a story um, from your book, Black TV, about Red Fox. Um, And I didn't know about this at all, but it's from, uh, you tell a story about Fox's 1965 appearance on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Can you recount that for us? Yes. Um, So this is a through line that I really loved. Um, Red Fox was, this was years before Sanford and Son, but he was on Johnny Carson's show and he was asked, who's the hottest comic working right now? And without hesitation, he says, Flip Wilson. Um, and so, of course, Red Fox is, is speaking to middle America, um, many of whom have never heard of Flip Wilson at that time. He was a comic who had traveled the what was called the Chitlin Circuit, so uh, sort of a network of black clubs in the United States. Um, and he had a following from that, from that but he wasn't super well known. Um, after Red Fox shouts him out on The Tonight Show, um, within months, he is doing a set on The Tonight Show. And then you see, it was interesting um, to see in ads for Flip Wilson's subsequent shows, Johnny Carson would would show up. Mm. So it would be like Johnny Carson's comedy find, even though it was technically Red Fox's. Um, And then, you know, there was another ad that I saw that you know, Johnny's used him three times since August. So it was sort of this very visible platform that Red Fox was able to give to a fellow black comedian. Um, and that sort of changed the game for for Flip Wilson. Wow. And, and Red Fox himself continued to have a major impact on opening doors for um, uh, black talent, right? I mean, he, correct me if I'm wrong, but he hired Richard Pryor? Yeah, so okay. Red Fox fought for Richard Pryor um, and his writing, his longtime writing partner, Paul Mooney, um, to write for Sanford and Son. And there was sort of this back and forth tension um, 
between Pryor and Mooney and network executives um, who were skeptical of this this duo, even though they had had experience writing comedy and they were known uh, to an extent. Um, but yeah, I think that really illustrates sort of the tendency for Black creators and talent to be underestimated. Um, the other thing that Red Fox did was he advocated for Black people behind the scenes, um, not just in the writer's room. He brought Stan Lathan, um, whose name is probably very well known to people as a, as a go-to director for sitcoms. And also um, he's directed a lot of, if not all of, uh, Dave Chappelle's comedy specials. Mm. Um, but he really got his start in episodic television on Sanford and Son. Okay. Wow. Well, I want to um, just get a little understanding about what it was about comedy um, that o- opened so many doors for for black talent. But let's let's hear a couple of bits from or scenes from uh, some other sitcoms. How about Martin, starring, of course, comedian Martin Lewis uh, Lawrence? Excuse me, my my mistake. It aired on Fox for five seasons in the mid '90s, and we have a clip here from an episode where a plumber comes to fix Martin's toilet and ends up passing out and dying on Martin's bathroom floor. He and his friends have some trouble getting the police to respond. Uh, and so Martin eventually, Martin calls 911 and tries to convince the police uh, that the plumber is, in fact, white. So here's part of that scene. Well, I mean, I can prove it. Ask me anything. Okay, fine. They want to know what America's favorite pie is. Oh, sweet potato, sweet potato pie. pie. Sweet potato no, no, pie. no, bing pie. Go with bing pie. Bing pie. No. No, it's apple pie. Baby, say apple pie. Ooh, good We're going to go with apple pie. So that's from Martin. And, my, you know, I made an error a little earlier um, saying that Martin was trying to convince uh, the authorities that, that the plumber was white when actually, obviously, he's trying to convince them that he's white in order to get the police to respond uh, to come to his house. So that, that's from Martin. And here's, here's another one. This is... Rock. It's a sitcom that aired on Fox again in the early 90s. And in fact, you write in the book, Bethany, about how uh, rock's mi- rock mixed comedy with some heavy, decidedly unfunny themes. Can you tell us a little bit more about that before we hear this scene? Yeah. So one of the one of the episodes that I looked at in the book was an episode that featured uh, Tommy Davidson. And it was about a homeless couple. Um, The woman was expecting and she was caught digging through um, the family's trash on Rock. And so Rock and his family invite them in. Um, and it sort of starts this conversation about, you know, they're homeless, but they're expecting and how do they get into this situation? Um, and so there's a lot of conversation about their circumstances and some back and forth between Tommy Davidson's character and Rock. Um, and it, you know, it is kind of a somber episode. It does not have a happy ending. Um, it is very, uh, there's a lot of, um, excuse more drama, Mm. I think is what I mean to say. And, um, you know, for so often, black television was really limited to comedy. And so you can kind of see throughout history, black creators are trying to, you know, incorporate more dramatic elements Mm -hmm. um, and kind of being held back. Well, here's a clip from that episode. um, And the woman you mentioned, she's talking about getting back on her feet soon. Baby not coming for a month and a half, but then Dawg say he gonna have a job. 
Then we're gonna get medical insurance again. <laughs> Obviously, she missed Bush's State of the Union address. <laughs> you know, people like her wouldn't be in this situation if we had our priorities straight. We spend billions of dollars to go to Mars, and we don't spend a dime on the homeless and hungry people right here. Yeah, I know, Pop, but what's the answer? Well, send Bush to Mars. <laughs> Bethany, um, you said just a second ago that so much of um, you know the early part of the 20th century uh, success of black TV was through comedy. Why do you think that is? Well, I think, you know, comedy has been important to Black culture and to Black life. Um, But I also think that from an industry standpoint, Black creators were really limited to comedy in those early days. Um, And we've seen this at the box office as well, where there's this sense that Black people only want to watch comedy. And of course, that's not true. Um, Mm. There are very, you know, universal experiences that have been explored beautifully through drama. And it really was not until like the mid-aughts, so like 2010 going forward, that we saw sort of uh, this influx of Black dramas. Mm. So it feels like there's two things going on there, right, at the same time, as you said, that the thinking was that uh, black audiences would only like comedies. But also, could it be that that comedy was seen as 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 more acceptable to to other audiences as well? And that would sort of be the limit of the kinds of black stories they would want to see? Yes, I do think that that um, is true to an extent that they're, you know, because black creators are not in control of their projects, you know, they they are limited. Um, to white writers and white creators telling their stories um, and advocating for those stories. So, yes, I think that it it was difficult for them to um, sort of push beyond comedy. But what they were able to do with comedy, I think, was tremendous. And as that rock clip showed, you know, they were able to infuse some social commentary and, and get to sort of the crux of what was going on in our culture. Oh, 100%. I couldn't agree more because, I mean, I'm thinking of other shows. You've talked about Richard Pryor before, um, and I also remember watching In Living Color all the time and and, um, laughing while hearing a lot of truths (laughs) about America. (laughs) um, What else? You mentioned David Chappelle, too. So it's almost like they're Trojan horses through the the brilliance of their comedy, just bringing... um, really uh, challenging issues to the forefront for uh, black audiences and others. But at the same time, though, it it seems like, um, as I read your book, it it takes time for the uh, the importance of black drama to be recognized uh, on TV. And I think a lot of people, the earliest example they might recall uh, of being totally gripped by um, authentic uh, stories told by uh, black dramatist was from Roots, of course, in 1977. So I must play a clip of that completely legendary miniseries. It spanned U.S. history from the enslavement of black people through the Civil War and Reconstruction. So here's a scene where the masterful LeVar Burton, who played Kunta Kinte, refuses to accept the new name given by his enslaver. Your name is Toby. You're going to learn to say your name. 
Let me hear you say it. What's your name? Kunta. Kunta Kinte. You know, um, it still gives me chills hearing that scene so many years later. Bethany, can you talk about um, your view of what made Roots so important? Yeah, I mean, that's such a, a memorable scene. Um, I think it's sort of memorized <laughs> by heart. Yeah. Um, you know, Roots was, as you said, it was the first really black drama to air on TV. Um, it was a gripping miniseries that had, you know, the entire country. It was sort of one of those first collective water cooler moments where the next day everybody is talking about Roots. And that includes President Ronald Reagan at the time. Um, he had an opinion about, uh, he said that it was interesting that so many people could watch, sort of stop their lives and watch TV at that time. And then also he was he was struck by how um, the black characters were the good people and the white characters were sort of the bad people in the story. And the fact that he commented on that, that really blew me away. Um, but it just goes to show how popular and what a big cultural moment Roots was. Mm. And it seemed like, it, you know, um, as a nation, I, I don't think it's wrong that we um, sometimes measure what is uh, uh, socially urgent by what is what appears on, on television. And the fact that this very raw um, examination of slavery and its impact on enslaved people. I mean, that that's the thing, right? It wasn't necessarily about the Civil War or, or it wasn't, you know, about uh, U.S. history writ large. It was really about black people and what enslavement did to them and their families. And so it's, that is another thing that made it seem like a breakthrough because it's not that often that we see, or at least at that time, we didn't see that authentic treatment of the darker sides of U.S. history, Bethany. Right. Absolutely. I think that really was um, the first time that America saw how cruel slavery was. Um, and, you know, it also was uh, the first time that we sort of had those discussions as a country. Um, and so it was really, really influential and really important um, Yeah. Mm. Well, can you tell me more then of how you've seen um, dramatic black TV continue uh, to grow and change since then? Yeah, well, um, another interesting thing to note about Roots is that it did not sort of, I think there was an expectation that it would lead to more dramas and more dramatic roles um, for black talent. And it really didn't. Um, there was, you know, sitcoms were still sort of the name of the game at that time. Um, it wasn't until the mid-aughts when we start to see Scandal and Shonda Rhimes' sort of slate of shows. So also thinking about how to get away with murder. Um, BET had uh, Being Mary Jane starring Gabrielle Union. And we start to see more shows that skewed dramatically. Mm. Well, we're talking with Bethany Butler today. She's author of the new book, Black TV, five decades of groundbreaking television from Soul Train to Blackish and beyond. We'll talk a about uh, the recent couple of decades of Black TV and especially what we're seeing on um, streaming platforms in just a moment. This is On Point.
The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and Bethany Butler joins us. Today, she's the author of Black TV, five decades of groundbreaking television from Soul Train to Blackish and beyond. And uh, I just want to give a nod to several other of the extremely influential uh, shows uh, that uh, comprise the canon of black TV. I mean, The Cosby Show needs no mention. It was the number one television show by Nielsen's ra- Nielsen ratings uh, for five of the years that it ran, and it ran from 1984 to 1992. But let's hear some sound here from another great show. This is The Jeffersons, which aired from 1975 to 1985 on CBS, created by Norman Lear, and it was a spinoff of All in the Family. What you got to say, Florence? <laughs> oh, yeah. I think you'd have made a great sheriff in the Old West. Why, you'd have got rid of all them bad guys. Yep. They'd have took one look at you and died laughing. <laughs> Scene from the Jeffersons there. Then, as I mentioned, I used to love watching In Living Color. It ran on Fox for five seasons in beginning in 1990, created by Keenan Ivory Wayans. And here we have one sketch which brings together In Living Color and... Red Fox, Red Fox's uh, Sanford and Son, which we discussed earlier, and here's Damon Wayans spoofing that classic comedy. Hi, this is Red Fox with your 1990 tax tips. <laughs> Tip number one, pay him. <laughs> Tip number two, if the IRS man show up to your house, lie <laughs> about everything, especially who you is. That's from In Living Color. And Bethany, just for you, we've got the Fresh Prince here, of course. Will Smith starred in that uh, classic comedy. It ran for six seasons on NBC in the early 90s. Boy, Uncle Phil and Aunt Viv sure hyped up about going down to their old neighborhood, huh? Oh, brother, I can just hear them now. Look, kids, this is where we lived when we first got married. And this is the little park where we walked little Hillary. And, oh, look, there's the pet store where we bought little Carlton. (laughs) (laughs) Still funny. Uh, Bethany, let's move into into the modern era. Uh, what do you think are some of the, the shows on now that you find is very defining of uh, what black TV is today? Um, well, that's, you know, just last year alone, we saw um, Swarm from uh, Donald Glover and Janine Neighbors, who was a writer on Atlanta. Um, and Swarm was sort of delving into the parasocial <laughs> relationships that fans have with celebrities. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, what what struck me about Swarm, one, is that I don't think we would have seen Swarm if Atlanta hadn't been on air. I think Atlanta was really innovative and surreal in a way that black television historically has not been allowed to be. Um, sort of on the industry side. So that was new. And then, you know, when Swarm premieres, it has a lot of sort of 
pointed cameos. Um, we saw uh, Michael Jackson's daughter, Paris Jackson, in a role that sort of poked fun at her sort of public profile. Um, there was a role for Leon from the classic uh, Robert Townsend movie, uh, The Five Heartbeats. So Leon had sort of a, a cameo. And I think that's a classic trademark of Black TV, where there are pointed sort of walk-on moments for legendary Black entertainers. Um, you played a clip earlier from the Jeffersons with Marla Gibbs. Mm -hmm. And Marla Gibbs is, is someone who I think when she shows up on a sitcom, um, it, it's just such an incredible moment. Um, she had a cameo on Scandal uh, where she walks in and she just says, where's the Black lady? Oh. And it was just such a beautiful moment because it was sort of acknowledging, you know, not just Olivia Pope, the character, but also Kerry Washington and Shonda Rhimes and this show that they had created and, and that resonated with so many uh, black people and black women in particular. Can you talk about that more? Because so many of the names you've mentioned about uh, who are like really standing out in television today, uh, not only as actors, but as showrunners, right, and, and producers and writers, are black women. Was, is that a change from, um, you know, the, the first, let's say, quarter century of the, of the period of television that you uh, focus on in the book? Um, I do think that it was a progression. Um, and I should mention, you know, one of the earliest black dramas that I did not mention before was um, Soul Food. And that was an adaptation of the uh, the movie Soul Food. Um, and so it sort of had a, a built-in audience. That movie had been really successful. Um, but in terms of drama, that was that was rare. That was I think that was 2000. Um, and so that was uh, that was created by a woman. And um, there are several, I think, in the last 20 years, we've seen a lot of television from black women. But as you've mentioned, you know, Issa Rae is, is a name that comes immediately mm -hmm. to mind. Um, Issa Rae had created a web series called The Misadventures of Awkward Black Girl. And this was, you know, mid-aughts. And so there really hadn't been, there had been nothing like that on television. And her web series really meant made people re realize that, um, that this was new and fresh and it was resonating with with young black millennials. This was their experience. Um, and it took several years before Issa Rae was able to sort of translate that to um, television. Um, and of course, she ended up creating uh, Insecure with Larry Wilmore, uh, a veteran of black TV. He's involved in so many shows that I talk about in my book. Um, but they created Insecure and, you know, Insecure just became, I'm, it, it, it's so groundbreaking. Um, and I think that what, what Issa Rae did, and, and she was really, uh, she was really sort of intentional in doing this, that this was a show just about regular black people living their lives. You know, it wasn't about them being black, mm. um, but you just saw their experience and watching it as a black person, as a black millennial, um, seeing Issa's character go through some of the th same things that I went through, you know, challenges at work, um, challenges with friends and sort of, you know, you, you come into your own in your 20s and that show really captures that. 
Um, and of course, it's off the air, but you can still watch it on streaming. And I think that's the other thing that makes this era so special is that a lot of these shows are resonating with new audiences um, and younger generations who are discovering, you know, the shows from the 90s, um, right. who are watching Living Single and Moesha and, and, and seeing themselves. And these stories are still resonating. You know, there's another one... Um that uh, that it's actually in the title of your book, Blackish. That um, I, we haven't mentioned or, or talked about in any detail. Tell me about why you think the story of uh, of Blackish is is important in understanding this this half century trajectory of Black TV. Yes, well, Blackish, you know, that's from Kenya Barris, and he was really inspired by Norman Lear. Yeah. Um, so I think it's a great example of sort of, you know, Norman Lear became almost shorthand for the topical sitcom. And, you know, it wasn't just Kenya Barris. I think Gerard Carmichael of The Carmichael Show also really inspired by Norman Lear. Um, but I think in terms of Blackish, you know, when Blackish premiered, it was really controversial, uh, mostly because of the title. There was a lot of reaction to, to Blackish and, and just the idea that there would be a show called that. Um, but I think what was really special about Blackish, you know, it was on prime time. Um, it really connected with this moment uh, in our culture. You know, Kenya Barris said that Blackish for him was about sort of his experience growing up, he grew up um, poor. He grew up, um, you know, never imagining that he would be as successful as he is and have the money and, uh, that he had. And so his family, his children specifically, were exposed to things that he had not been exposed to when he was young. And so Blackish was sort of him grappling with uh, that status of, you know, uh, being upper middle class, even wealthy, and how his children's lives looked different from his, and also, you know, the the similarities. Um, there were the thing I love about Blackish is that there were episodes that really delved into like these cultural moments. Um, there were episodes about you know the presidential election. There were episodes about. Um, you know, uh, police violence and how specifically not just police violence and that it happened, but specifically how to talk about it with kids. Mm -hmm. um, and that goes back to, you know, the question of is it universal? And I think that was an episode where everyone could take something away from that episode. Yeah. Well, on that point, um, there has been... Uh, some criticism of criticism of black TV today from certain black scholars and not of your book, but what they see on black TV uh, today. Uh, for example, John Blake wrote a very long analysis. It appeared on CNN and the, the title of the analysis was when hope becomes a four letter word. What's missing from today's TV shows that deal with race? And here's a little excerpt of what he says. He says, um, he says that as a black child of the 1970s, he grew up with shows such as The Jeffersons. And he says, I miss one storytelling element from that era uh, that is missing from contemporary black TV series. Hope. Not a naive hope, he says, but a muscular type of hope that maintained that, through ra that though racism was persistent, America would eventually transcend its racial divisions. What do you think about that? That's interesting. You know, a Blackish had an episode actually called Hope. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, 
to his point, that episode was more sort of about Black hope and Black joy in the community um, as it, you know, existed in America right now. So I think it for for Blackish, it's sort of less about, you know, the hope that we will transcend racial barriers and more that, you know, Black people are sort of secure in their own cultural journey and that our stories are part of American history. They're part of what America is and what makes it the country that it is today. Um, there's another Blackish episode that that goes back to slavery. Um, it's a musical episode and it talks about Juneteenth. Um, Juneteenth, of course, have, has been in the news a lot in the last few years. It became a national holiday. Uh, but before that, you know, Blackish really gave an overview of what Juneteenth was and what it means to Black people. Um, and so I think you know, for me, that's an element of hope that I see on TV, um, it, just in telling our stories and making them authentic and making them true to who we are as Black people. Mm. Well, then in addition, he also says that, uh, maybe just to press this point a little bit more, he claims that um, that a lot of modern Black TV, in his words, quote unquote, confuses hopelessness with authentic Blackness. Your thoughts on that? It's interesting. I mean, I think that especially just looking at the last year alone in black television, you know, we had um, the other black girl on Hulu, um, which was sort of a thriller. And um, I think that it's just really exciting time in black TV. I don't know that I don't know that I would agree with that, mm -hmm. that there is, you know, that we're sort of uh, focusing on hopelessness. Um, I think that there are, there is a diversity of stories on black TV that has never existed before. Yeah. Well, I will say that he uh, he cites one exception to that, and it's Abbott Elementary. <laughs> Quinta Brunson's just marvelous uh, series. Um, and for folks who haven't seen it, it's just this terrific show about um, teachers, like very uh, heroically working with with students in a underfunded public school that's uh, largely uh, has black students in it. It's a wonderful, really wonderful series. And I know that you're you're a fan of it, Bethany. Um, you want, want to tell me why? I just think it's a really, I mean, like you said, it is, it's optimistic and it's, it's a really feel good story. Um, the other thing about Abbott Elementary that I love is the role that uh, Quinta Brunson created for Cheryl Lee Ralph. Yes. And, you know, Cheryl Lee Ralph, of course, was on Moesha. Um, she's very familiar to audiences of that show. Um, but Abbott Elementary has kind of given her her flowers in a way Um she won an Emmy, right? Yeah, yeah, she won an Emmy. She gave a beautiful speech. And that moment captured so much about what I love about Black TV as a sort of universe or canon, as you mentioned, um, that, you know, this through line from Moesha to Abbott Elementary and seeing people um, sort of get their due uh, through Black TV and through other Black creators who grew up and were inspired by them. Mm. Well, uh, do you think that uh, maybe this golden age of, of black TV, as you call it, has been um, or has 
had some help accelerating because there are just many more platforms on which um, creators can can put their shows on. I mean, would would such a thing have been possible if we were still back in the age of, you know, just network TV or maybe even just network and cable TV? Right. Absolutely. I do think that that factors in, you know, the moment that my book starts, we're talking about, you know, three, four networks. Um, now there are so many more options. And, you know, black creators have talked about that sort of there, there are more opportunities to get their shows on air. I think the question is, you know, what happens once they're on air or they're on a streaming network? You know, do they run for five, six seasons? Do the creators get to tell the stories that they envisioned happening or are they canceled after one season? You know, um, is it seen as the black show that's on at the time or is it seen as part of a diversity of storytelling that gets to, you know, black people are, are not a monolith. So we have many, many stories to tell. Well, Bethany Butler's new book chronicles 50 Years of Black TV, it's called Black TV. Five decades of groundbreaking television from Soul Train to Blackish and beyond. Bethany, it's been a great pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so very much. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.